If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, starting with the 13th verse, Matthew chapter 16. We want to look at one of the last images uh, of the church, the last images we're going to, going to cover. And uh, we're losing the picture of soldiers. Let me tell you where we get this from. When you look in the Scripture, the Bible talks a number of times about how that we are in spiritual battle, and they encourage us as believers to put on our armor, to be ready to fight the individual battles that we have. Uh, some, of the, um, some of the passages, Romans 13, 12 says, so then let us uh, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 and 8 says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And then you come to a passage that many of us are familiar with, found in Ephesians 6, verse 11, and it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then over the next six or seven verses, it just talks about all the different pieces of the armor. So over and over, it talks about how that we are fighting a spiritual war. And so we need to be soldiers for Christ. We need to be able to put on the armor and be ready to go every day to go into the battle and to fight the battle. So when you think about the church, since we're all members of the church and we are the church, then it means that we're all soldiers coming together. So it's in essence, the church is kind of like a battalion of, of believers that are going out and going out into the world. And so with that in mind, I want you to look at this passage found in Matthew chapter 16. And so in Matthew chapter 16, I want you to start in the 13th verse. And it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so he's saying, who are people saying that I am? And they're giving him all these different answers. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, I appreciate his finding out what everyone else says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, on this rock I will build my church. What is this rock? On this rock. That rock is the confession of faith, the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He said, that's what I will build my church. But then he says, I will build my church. Jesus himself will build the church. And so if Jesus builds the church, it means that the church will not be destroyed. No matter how much the forces of darkness may attack the church, the church will not be destroyed. And the reason is, is because Jesus is the one that built the church. Now, along the way, there will be some casualties, but the war will be won. Some of the casualties is that churches fall by the wayside. In the Southern Baptist Convention, there are, a thousand, there are 1,000 churches every year that close their doors. It's hard to believe. 1,000 churches every year close their door. But the universal church itself will continue to move forward. And because Jesus says, I will build my church. 
And so whatever attacks may come onto the church, he says the church will still thrive and continue to grow. You see this all around the world. In China, 1949, in 1949, they established the People's Republic of China. And when they established the People's Republic of China, they brought in a ruler who was hostile towards the Christian faith, and they began to persecute and attack the Christians there in China. And in 1949, there were about one million believers in China. And so 30 years later, 1979, as people went back in to see how is the church doing, in the midst of severe persecution, the church had gone from 1 million to 10 million believers. And today, the figure is close to 18 million believers. So no matter how much the forces of darkness attack the church, the church will survive and it will thrive and it will grow. And so Jesus is telling him here, he says, I will build the church. And then when he says, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I want you to focus on the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Too often when we look at this verse and we say, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We began to think that, you know, as a church, we need to hunker down in a defensive position knowing that whatever attack comes to us, we can handle it. That's just wrong. This is not a passage that talks about a defensive position. This is a passage that talks about an offensive strategy. Because it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates. Whenever you think of gates of a city, do you think offense or defense? What do you think? What are gates for? They're, they're defense. They're to protect have you ever seen in history or in any movie where someone was getting ready to attack and said, hey, get the gates of the city, we're going to attack. And they pick up the gates and they go run after somebody. Nobody does that. The gates are for defense. And so when it says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, what that's telling you is that the church is attacking it. And as the church attacks the gates of hell, hell will not prevail against it. The church will be victorious. What this is saying is that there is an aggressive mission that the church is to have. We're not to be in a passive defensive position. We're to be aggressive. And we're to be moving forward in that. And I, as I kept, I kept reading this passage and studying it and over and over, the be aggressive, be aggressive uh, kept jumping out at me. And, you know, my mind works in weird ways and, and yours probably does too. And and all I could think back to was when my daughter was playing uh, basketball in, in junior high school, and uh, we had to go to all the games, which means we heard all the cheers. And when you hear all the cheers, you, they kind of stay with you. And sure enough, there was a cheer there at, at Briarwood that the junior high cheerleaders had. It was, be aggressive, be aggressive, be e aggressive, okay? And it just stayed in my head. And I remember I'd go home, I'd go, be aggressive, be e aggressive, okay? And and it's, it's, it, was always, it was always there. Uh, it it kind of got displaced at another game that really is, I think, my favorite one of all time. And that is that when one of our girls got fouled and they went to the free throw line, the cheerleaders on the other side began to go, you're scared, you're shaking, you ain't gonna make it. <laughs> and that's just, I mean, I started to applaud. I said, that's good. That is really good. And I told Lauren afterwards, I said, I love that cheer. I know they're yelling at you, but still, I love the cheer. I, I think it, it's great. But the be aggressive, be aggressive, we are the church. We're not to hunker down in some defensive position. 
It says here that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which means that the mission of the church is to be aggressive on there. And some commentators have looked at that same passage and looked at the word hell, which could be translated Hades, and and think about, you know, the realm of the dead, and, and can think that we live this world in a beleaguered city, and we're attacked by sin and sorrow and death. But what Jesus has done is because of his life, his death and resurrection, he's overcome sin, he's overcome sorrow, he's overcome death. And when we as soldiers of the cross go through this life and we get to that final moment of life and death and we stand there at the gates, we discover that those gates have been captured and we go through those gates and we go into life everlasting. Either way, it points out the aggressive mission of the church. And so when we think about the aggressive mission of the church, I think about the passage in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus stood up and preached one of his first sermons, and he preached it at his home church, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the reason the Spirit of the Lord is upon me is that he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, the evangelism. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, this is my purpose and a mission. And it's evangelism and it's compassionate justice is the two pillars that we have grabbed on in what we call our Touch the World 2015. And that is that we proclaim that good news. And as we proclaim that good news, at the same time, we're over here looking at compassionate justice. It's like the military. The military goes in and, and some of the times their responsibility is to free people from an oppressive leader and a, an oppressive regime. And they go in aggressively. And then sometimes our military goes in and they do humanitarian work. And even as they're going in trying to free people, you also see them doing humanitarian things. And so that's really what the church is. We're to go in there and we're to go in and we're to take territory. We are to punch holes in the darkness and let light shine through. We are to go and take territory that Satan has taken and we're to take that back. And some of that territory may be families that are being broken up and being destroyed by Satan. We're to go in and to take that back. You know, there's things in our culture that, that it seems that, that, uh, that Satan's getting a hold on. We don't need to give those up. We need to come in and take them back. And the church needs to be aggressive in that and sharing the love of Christ. So what is the purpose? That drives us down to the fifth purpose of our church, and this is what it is, to make Jesus known to our neighbors and the nations to make Jesus known to our neighbors and the nations. And I'm going to tell you, you cannot make Jesus known to our neighbors and our nations by just hunkering down in a defensive position. Because they're not going to come to you. You've got to go to them. So how do we do that? Well, let's just break that up for just a moment. Make Jesus known. You can make Jesus known. And I'm going to give you two things that are essential for us to make Jesus known. Number one is to be a light is to be a light. If you're still in the book of Matthew, I want you to turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount. These are the words that Jesus is sharing with his followers, his disciples. And in verse 14 of chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does he say? The reason that your light is to shine. So people see your good works and they pat you on the back? No. So people see your good works so that they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How are we going to make Jesus known? One of the ways is for us to be a light. And when we are that light and people see those good works, then we give honor and glory to the Father. Henry Blackaby is the author of Experiencing God. And a few years ago, he spoke, and he spoke at a, at, at a conference and talked about that he thought that America's judgment was coming pretty soon. And then he made these statements. He says, it's God's people who hold the destiny of America. Don't fuss at the world. It's acting just like its nature. We have got to be salt and light again. We have got to have an observable difference. Look at those last two words, he says, an observable difference. I love that phrase. Our life needs to be an observable difference. That means that when people see you and they come into contact with you, there's an observable difference. It's not something they've got to dig down in to see. It's observable. They see it. They see that there's a difference. That's where living that light, that's where being that light for Christ and living out his life, and when that happens, people see you and say, you know, that's different, and you're different. And then you give that opportunity to be able to give God the glory. Because when people see you live a life that is so God-centered and so culturally, counter-culturally different, it'll begin to take notice. And I've seen this. I've had the opportunity as I travel around at times to, with, uh, with other believers, and whether it be on, on mission trips, whether it be maybe with conventions, uh, just opportunities to speak at places, and not just me by myself, but there are other believers there. And I've had the opportunity to be on an airplane and to have a, a stewardess make a comment to a group and say, man, I just want to thank you. You guys are, if I could have, if I could have people like you for every one of my trips, it would make my life so much better. They notice it. Or how about that frazzled uh, person behind the counter there at the Delta area when everybody's flight is blowing up and everyone's all upset and yet there's this group of believers that comes and handles themselves in, in a Christ-like manner and to hear them the way they responded. We saw this when we went to Israel a number of years ago and all of our luggage got lost. What a happy day that was. And as we were in Tel Aviv and, and there are just hordes of people attacking the people at the counter and, and, you know, we hardly can speak language back and forth. And through all the different groups, when it was all over, our missionary, Herbie Gear, who was there, came back to our group and he said, I just need to let you know that the leaders over there that were working all the counters pulled me to the side and said they just wanted to thank me and that group of people that I had brought in because they were so different than all the other people. Their kindness, their gentleness was something we just don't experience. I've had waitresses in restaurants come by to tables and thank people for the way that they were acting and the way they've treated them. I'm sorry I got your order wrong and all those things. Folks, it, it is an observable difference. And we're, it's like, it's not, I'm not asking you to do something that's impossible. I'm just saying live out the life that God has called us to live. 
Be empowered by God's Spirit. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to take control of our life and then we act Christ-like, it's amazing in this world. See, a lot of times we get upset because this world keeps getting darker. And that does bother me. But when this world gets darker, it just means that our light shines further and brighter. Because the darker the room is, then all of a sudden the brighter that little candle becomes. And you need to be that candle. You need to be that light. And if we're going to make Jesus known, it starts by just being a light. Being a light. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I got one of these things, Laffy Taffy. You ever got any Laffy Taffy? I'm not a Laffy Taffy eater, okay? But, but I got some, and I opened it up, and there's like a little joke in there. And I remember opening it up, and one of them said, uh, why did the little girl bury her flashlight? Because her batteries died. Okay, all right? Well, I, I looked at that, and I said, this is a lot like the Christian life. There are a lot of people out there who we look at this passage and say, hey, your light needs to shine. You say, you know, I've got nothing coming out of my flashlight. So I'll just bury the flashlight and I'll give up on all this. No, your batteries are dead. You need to re-energize your batteries. And it's amazing that if you'll re-energize your batteries and you'll get back to a consistent walk with Christ, all of a sudden those batteries are re-energized and all of a sudden you turn the switch on, hey, I got light coming here. Jesus is saying we need to be a light, and we need to be a light that points to the light of the world. That's the first thing. Number two is we need to be a witness. We need to be a witness. If you're going to make Jesus known, then we need to be a light, and we need to be a witness. Acts 1.8, and he says, Jesus talking to his disciples right before he ascended to heaven, he says, and you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. Jerusalem, the city they're in, all Judea, right in here, Samaria, then the ends of the world. He's covering it, covering it all. And it's interesting, he says, I want you to be my witnesses. He did not say, I want you to be a defense attorney and defend me. He didn't say, I want you to be a salesman so you can give a big sales pitch for why people need to come to Christ. I just want you to be a witness. You know what a witness is? A witness is a person that tells you what they've seen and what happened in their life. That's what a witness is. All a witness is is telling your story. And if you're a believer in Christ, every one of you has a story. And every one of you can be a witness. You don't have to have any certain skills just to be able to tell your story. And when they call a witness to the stand, they just ask the witness, tell us what you saw or tell us what happened. And that's what we need to do. We need to be a witness. The way we make Jesus known is that we will be a witness. And this is so natural in the New Testament. When Andrew found Jesus, as soon as he found Jesus, he went and he told his brother, Peter. When Jesus was walking along the seashore and he found Matthew, he says, Matthew, I want, to come. I want you to come. I want you to work with me. I want you to be one of my followers. First thing Matthew did was invited Jesus to a party so he could hang out with his friends and his business associates. When Zacchaeus, who was stuck up in that tree, and Jesus says, come on down, I'm going to have a lunch with you today. He had lunch with him. Salvation came to their house. Guess what Zacchaeus did? He contacted all the people that he had wronged, and he made things right. And he told them about his story. 
When Paul and Silas, and they were coming through the city, and they find this woman by the name of Lydia, they share the gospel with her. As soon as she makes her decision, she says, I want you to come to my house, and you can share with my family. When the Philippian jailer, when uh, Paul and Silas, they were in jail, and then all of a sudden it says the earthquake came, and, uh, and they were loosened, and the jailer came in. They shared Christ with him. He made a decision. He brought him to their house, and it says, and all of his house came to know Christ. What it means is that people just tell stories. You tell your story. And it's natural in the New Testament. You meet Christ, you then tell someone else about, this is my story. This is what has happened in my life. So, make Jesus known. Be a light and be a witness. And last of all is to our neighbors and the nations. It covers it all. To our neighbors and the nations. And some of you will say, God, I want you to make me some lighthouse that will shine somewhere. Well, I'm going to tell you this. God is not going to call you to be a lighthouse somewhere until he can use you as a candle right where you are in your own neighborhood. You need to be a light right where you are. And you begin to be that light where you are, then God begins to uh, expand the places that your light can shine. And we need to be to our neighbors and to our nations. For us as a church, this is something that we have taken serious and we need to take it even, even more serious. And in order as a church to take this, make Jesus known to our neighbors and our nations, there's some things that we need to do and there's some things that you need to do as members and I need to do. I'm just going to give you two things and every one of us can do these. Are you ready? Number one is aggressive in your giving. I'm going back to that word aggressive. Aggressive in your giving. Our church has been aggressive in our giving to missions. We made the decision that whenever someone gives any money to our operating budget, we take the first 10% and we give it to the cooperative program, which is through the Southern Baptist Convention, which helps pay for seminaries. It pays for uh, support of missionaries overseas, missionaries at home, disaster relief, and on and on. We just give with 40,000 other Southern Baptist churches, and our church last year gave about $750,000 and say, we believe in that. But that's not it. It doesn't stop there. Then we have another offering that we call Make Jesus Known. And Make Jesus Known is an offering built off this purpose statement of saying, we want to go over and above, and we want to support missionaries and ministries uh, that are outside our budget, people that we partner with. And to be involved with the Andy Armstrong offering to North American missions and Lottie Moon offering, which goes to international missions. And 10 years ago, that goal was $400,000. Today, it's a million dollars. A million dollars that we give over and above so that we can make Jesus known to the neighbors and the nations. And then this past fall, we just completed a chapters campaign. And in that chapters campaign, we said that 20% of every dollar we give to it will go to missions. And we identified 10 different projects of people that we partnered with and that money will go to them so that they can continue to expand their ministry and advance the kingdom of God. And then we've got another 200,000 we're just setting aside for church planning. This is, we need to be aggressive in our giving because we can't all go to all these places and God's called these people. We need to support them and support that ministry. And we can do this. And we can do this. We can be aggressive in our giving. And let me just share with you as a pastor that when we're making these plans, we are very strategic in the things that we plan. We're very strategic in our church planning. Do you realize that in North America, there are 259 million lost people? 259 million lost people in North America. 
83% of the population of North America lives in metropolitan cities. 83%. So if you've got 259 million lost people, 83% of everyone that's living in North America lives in metropolitan cities. If you were going to put money to plant a church, where would you put your money? You put it in the cities. That's where you got to reach the city. That's where the greatest darkness is. And so North American Mission Board has identified 32 SEND cities, S-E-N-D, SEND cities. And so what we do is we're looking, New York City is one of the cities that we've focused on. And what we do is we try to provide support to go into that city to punch holes in the darkness and to plant churches there. And we do this in other major cities also. That's what we're trying to do with our church planting money. But we're also strategic in our partnerships. I... Um, I, I discovered not too long ago <clears throat> that a survey came out to determine where in, what country in the world has the highest percentage growth of conversion. Like the, percentage, the highest percentage of people that have come to know Christ over the last number of years. And I was blown away. I had no idea it would be that country. And you come back next week, and I'll tell you exactly what that country is. But <laughs> some of you already are Googling, saying, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's Nepal. Nepal. In 1950, Nepal had seven believers. Today, there's 1.1 million believers in Nepal, and there is church planting going like crazy in Nepal. Okay? That sound good? Now, hang on to this. This is really incredible. Okay, you've got all that happening in Nepal, a place that wasn't even on, on our radar. And then all of a sudden, we were contacted a couple years ago by a, an organization that does Bible translations, and they were doing Bible translations in, fill in the blank, Nepal. Yes. Wouldn't it be great if I told you Spain? You said, man, I missed that. Yeah, Nepal. They're doing Bible translations there in Nepal. And they said, we want to do four to five languages in this area of Nepal. We've identified this area to where there are unreached people group that have never heard the gospel, and the gospel's never been placed in their language. So what we want to do is do the translation work to get it into their language. But it's not that easy. They said, because what we have to do is it's a 12-year process. In the first three years, we have to go into that area talk to the people, learn the language, learn the idioms, listen to them tell us stories so we can understand how do you phrase in their language so people will understand. And then once we do that, we will put together a dictionary that has their language, which in these languages, they've never had a dictionary before. So we'll put a dictionary together. Then we will go into those unreached people groups and we will teach them their own language. Because they've, it's just a spoken language. It's not been written down. So now we're going to have this written language for them. And as it's, as it's written down, we want to teach them so they can understand it and make them literate so that when we get a Bible translation and we put it in their hands, they know what they're reading. Does that make sense? That makes great sense. And they said, but here's the difficulty. This is about a 12-year process, and we think that the first three years is doing all of this work. And at the end of those three years, what we will have is some oral stories from creation to consummation, and we'll also have a dictionary. But then it picks up. And then over the next two years, we'll have the Gospel of Luke for them. And then after that, by the end of the other seven remaining years, we'll have the entire New Testament and portions of Genesis that will be in their hands. 
He said, but the problem is, is most people don't want to put the amount of money into the first three years because you don't really see the fruits of it. It's like building a foundation of a building. When people are building a building and they're building the foundation, that's not the fun part, is it? You, you wait for it to go up and see the roof and the windows and the walls and all that, but the foundation's key. And he said, a lot of people won't, won't get involved in that. But you know, what we said is we said, you know, I believe in this, and we prayed about it, ran about it, and said, we want to be a part of this, and we want to be on the foundation. And, and we want to be one of the first churches that says, we're into the process, we'll help you. And they took that, <clears throat> and they've tied it in with some, some other work that the International Mission Board is, is doing, and everybody was kind of getting excited. And then Jeremy and I went over to Nepal, and we, and we met some missionaries uh, for the IMB. We brought them into this meeting. We brought these two together, and all of a sudden, something's happened, they said, that has never happened before. And that is that the people that are planting churches in Nepal to the International Mission Board are now working with these people, and they're saying, we're going to plant churches in those regions that you're doing the languages, so as soon as you have the scriptures, we'll have churches, we'll have churches ready to be planted and then this thing can just explode over there and they are so excited because it's opened their eyes to things that could happen that they'd never seen before and your church this church our church is a part of making that happen and the reason that can happen is because our people are aggressive in their giving so that we can look to them and say we will pledge that amount of money because our people are faithful and God's beginning to do some incredible works over there and we're getting some neat reports coming from it See, that, that's what I'm talking about. Make Jesus known to the nations, to our neighbors and the nations, okay? It's aggressive giving, and I just challenge you. And, and we've challenged you before on this. We have Global Impact Celebrations coming up, and uh, in two weeks, we'll have a, have a service to where uh, Vance Pittman will be preaching, and they'll ask each one of us to fill out a financial commitment card. I just want you to already begin praying about it. And some of you are saying, well, I, you know, I give to the budget. I'm giving the chapters. I appreciate that, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. But let's just take a look and say, i got to continue to support make Jesus known. And let's be ready to be aggressive in our giving. And the very last thing is aggressive in your going. Aggressive in your giving, aggressive in your going. I, I love the fact this church doesn't just like to write checks but likes to go out. We average 35 mission trips a year with about 1,200 people going on mission trips. Half of those are usually international, and that's exciting. But we need more. We need more. We need, each one of you needs to go on a mission trip. I don't care if that mission trip is downtown Birmingham working with Urban Purpose or working with the Foundry or Love Lady Center. Praise God. Or maybe it's something in the state of Alabama or something in the United States or something international. But I think you need to take a look at your, your schedules and look at all the things that we have at this church and go online and see all the trips that we have and say, you know what, we need, we need to do this. Do you know what we do intentionally as a church planning for our children growing up? For our children growing up in this church, when they hit sixth grade, from sixth grade we will take them on their first mission trip. From sixth grade until 12th grade, over those years, they will go have an opportunity to go on 12 mission trips with four of those international. Now, you just think about that. I can't even imagine growing up uh, having those opportunities. Once your child hits sixth grade, all the way till the time they graduate from high school, they have an opportunity to have gone on 12 different mission trips, four of those international. Then, when they come to the end of high school, they might be looking at life a little bit different than the way you and I looked at life. They begin to see the whole world. And for some of them, 
It will be, I'm going to go to college and I've got a major that I want to pursue. But you know what? I'm thinking I want to take this major and use it for kingdom purposes. And some people will say, I definitely want to train to be a doctor, but I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to go overseas and do this work or go into some underprivileged areas or go into the inner city. Some will say, I want to take my skills as an attorney and I want to do the same thing and place it in other areas. Some as an engineer, whatever. It just opens up your mind to see the world more than just over the mountain, Vestavia and Hoover. I love the fact that we do that. And, and you know, we, we've got someone in, in our church it would almost uh, kind of be a poster child for this, and that's Kelsey Weeks. And Kelsey Weeks, and if you have your, your set-apart prayer guide here, she's near the back over here. And Kelsey Weeks grew up in our church, and she kind of did what we were hoping people would do. She went on a mission trip with her parents, and I'm so thankful that her mom and dad, Jeff and Becky, they sit there and say, hey, we're going to go, we're going to take a uh, family mission trip. And at age nine, she went on a mission trip to Peru. She then took mission trips with our church in 6th grade, 7th grade, and 8th grade. And then when it got to ninth grade, she took a medical missions trip with her family, and they went to Ethiopia. And as a ninth grader, she fell in love with Africa. And so then as a 10th grader, the next summer, and I remember sitting there talking to her family, they were sending her to Zambia for six weeks on her own. Mom and dad weren't there. 10th grader. I went, oh, are you serious? <laughs> Zambia. I said, maybe Montgomery, but Zambia. Wow. And they said, yes, this is what she needs to do. This is what she wants to do. So she goes over and spends six weeks in Zambia. Then I believe the next year, 11th grade, she goes for five weeks and spends over there in Zambia. And she started to make some contacts, got a heart, and worked with some leadership over there. And then her senior year, after her senior year in high school, she said, I'm going to take a gap year. I want to spend six months in Zambia. And she goes there and spends six months in Zambia. And I remember getting emails from her. And I think her first few months, it was just like, um, I don't know why God's got me here. Things just aren't coming about. And then all of a sudden, things began to click. And God gave her and the leadership there an amazing vision for what could take place. And so she started an NGO that's called Luyando. And it's in a village in southern Zambia. And she and the leadership there are creating a ministry to break the cycle of poverty. They're trying to educate the youth of Zambia. They're meeting their physical needs with food. They're pointing them to Christ through some afternoon kids club. She's starting up and working with an, starting an orphanage over there. And then they have a community outreach program that they're trying to create jobs for the parents of these children. Do you hear all this that they're doing? She's like 18, 19 years old. Getting all these ideas and working with that leadership. And then she came back. And she came back after six months and she went off to Auburn, I think, for a year. And then after that year, she says, you know, my heart is right there in Zambia. So I really want to put my efforts into working with Luyando through that ministry. And she's a part of our Global Impact Celebration. And in fact, when you go out on that table that has missionary needs, you will see uh, Kelsey Weeks, Luyando, some of the needs that they have, along with many of the other missionaries. I mean, that's not the path for every person here. But why I share this with you is that this is a person in our church whose parents took it serious to say, you know what, why don't we take a mission trip and at least let our children see this. And when they did, God got a hold of Kelsey's heart. And now this is what Kelsey's doing. 
And all they can do is just continue to grow. We need to be aggressive in our going. And so when you're beginning to lay out what you want to do this next summer, spring break, summer, and all these different things, here's my challenge to you. If we're going to truly be a church that says make Jesus known to the neighbors and the nations, you need to take out your calendar, go online, find out all the different trips that we've got, mission opportunities, and look down there and say, where do you think that we could go? And you may say, we can't do it this year, but i tell you what we're going to do is start putting some funds aside, and for 2015, this is what we want to do as a family. The benefits could be amazing for the kingdom. And anytime you go on a mission trip and you're doing something for someone else, it will impact your life and change your life. And almost any person that's been on a mission trip will stand up and say amen to that. And there it is. (laughs) Because God will do some things in your life that he can't do just sitting in the comfort of Vestavia and Hoover. We are soldiers. We are part of the battalion, part of the church. And as a part of the church, we are to be aggressive in our mission. That doesn't mean that we hit people over the head with the Bible and do all those things. I'm just saying you be aggressive in your love. You be aggressive in sharing Christ. You be aggressive in carrying out the mission that God has called you to do. And this church needs to continue to do that. And my prayer is it starts today. And that today you would make that decision and say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to be your soldier. I'm ready to be aggressive in making Jesus known to both the neighbors around me and also to the nations. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Father, we thank you for the call that you've given us and um, the call to be uh, your soldiers, a call to be servants who go and share the great love of Jesus Christ to others. And I thank you for our people and for what we've been able to do up to this point. But Father, I know that there is so much more that you want us to do. And so it's our prayer that on this day, you'll speak to our hearts and help us to drive some stakes down to say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to get in active service. I feel like I've been sitting in the reserves too long. I'm ready to go active service with you. And so Lord, may that be our prayer today. We ask that during this time of response, that uh, you speak to the hearts of our people, those that need to make those responses, Lord, that they be willing to do that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.